to Contemplate, a Bible teaching ministry of Pastor David Robinson and brought to you by Acts Church in Vancouver, Washington. We're in Acts chapter 4 today, where the apostles pray for boldness, and we're going to learn a lot about what that means. Here's Pastor David with today's episode, recorded live at Acts Church. It says, um, this is chapter 4, verse 23. If you have your Bible, uh, this would be a good time to grab it. If not, we'll have it up here on the screen. It says, and being let go... They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So I want to stop there for a second. It says they raised their voice with one accord. That means all of these guys, the whole church that was there, that was gathered at that time, all these guys together raised their voice in one accord. It sort of puts me in the mindset of thinking like this is some sort of uh, psalm or song that they're all aware of and that when they praise God, they, they may, maybe they sung this together, maybe they say it uh, kind of like we would recite poetry or we would recite um, different things in liturgy. Certain churches do a lot of that type of thing where you're reciting um, certain things that remind us of who God is, okay? So they do this together. And we find similar language to this, to what's been said, to what they're saying here in other places in Scripture. Like the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, that says that God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then we see it again, we see it in the New Testament, we see it in Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 16. We actually see this same um, psalm, if you will, in Acts a couple more times during preaching where we see them saying it in Acts 14 verse 14 in Acts 17 verse 24 we see this same thing where it says God made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them and so let's break this down what are they what are they saying okay remember where they've come from here they are they're praising God and, and there's going to be more to this prayer and they're setting up this prayer they're addressing God in a certain way to set up how they're praying to him and what, what are they saying? They say, Lord, you are God. So right out of the gate, they say, Lord, you are God. The word Lord that they're saying here has a very specific meaning. It's not just the word that we throw into prayers a lot of times as we're praying, right? It actually means something. And the word Lord has to do with saying, look, you're my master. You're in charge. You're the king. You're in charge of me. I do what you say. So when we address Jesus as Lord, we're saying, we follow you. They're saying, Lord, okay? And they're saying, you are God. And when they say you are God, that has a lot of meaning. That, that's a phrase that's very pregnant with meaning. When they say you are God, it means something. So Merriam-Webster defines God as this. It says, God is the perfect and all-powerful spirit or being that is worshipped, especially by Christians, Jews, and Muslims, as the one who created and rules the universe. Uh, now, I may disagree about whether everyone's worshiping the same God there, but the point is that these particular attributes are the attributes that you are ascribing to God. When you say, you are God, what are you saying? You're saying that you're perfect, that you're all-powerful, and that you created and rule the universe. Minimally, when they say, you are God, they mean that. So out of the gate, they're saying, Lord, I follow you. And you are God. You are perfect. You know everything. You created everything. 
you are everything. So that's the beginning of their prayer. They say that. And as we go through this passage and, and see what, what else is going on here, it's important that we keep in mind a couple of things that they're saying here. The first one is they're addressing the rule of God, the rule of God. They're saying he is in charge. God is in charge. Okay. Like I said, the word Lord implies that. The The last church that I was at, the teaching pastor there, a guy named Jimmy Inman, uh, would say something to the effect of, uh, you can't say no Lord. There's no such thing as saying no Lord. It's a contradiction in terms. If you say Lord, you automatically are saying, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. So you rule. You're in control. This is what Jesus said about those who use the word Lord. And use it in the wrong way. He says, this is Luke 6, 46. He says, but why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? So it is a given that when you use the word Lord, you mean you're the guy who I follow and I do everything you say. So if you're praying and you're saying, Lord, God, uh, you know, do this for me or thank you for this, whatever. But then as soon as you're done praying, you walk away and you don't do the things that he's called you to do. Then you were lying when you said, Lord, right? You weren't correct about that. So we should, as we pray and as we use the name of God, as we use the word Lord, we should keep in mind what we're saying. It should be part of the worship that you have in your prayer life when you address God by his name, by his attributes, by who he is to you. You should keep that in mind. Certainly they are in this passage, okay? And the second thing that we see is that God is creative, okay? The creative power of God, God as a maker. That's the next thing that they emphasize. And I want you to think about um, makers. What is a maker? A maker makes something, right? He designs something, he or she designs something, they craft something, they make it, they make it to work a particular way. Think about the person who makes a watch or a computer or whatever it is. The person who makes a thing designs that thing to work in a very particular way. And they're saying, God, you made what? the heavens and the earth, right? You're the maker. So understand these things. As we walk through the rest of this passage, I want you to keep these things in your mind. This is who they're saying God is. This is who they're saying God is, okay? So let's, uh, let's look at the next couple of verses here. Verse 25, and we'll go through verse 28. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, what I want to do is I want to take that last part that I read first and then go back to the first part. So the last part they're talking about, this is God's plan and his purpose. He determined it beforehand. This is another aspect of God that they're bringing up. The fact that God is sovereign, that he's sovereign, that he knows what needs to happen, that he planned what's going to happen, that Jesus dying on the cross and rising again was something that had been planned beforehand. He knew that it was going to happen. This is who God is. He has a purpose. God has a purpose. Now, it's hard for us to think about God having a purpose sometimes, especially when things in our life are hard. Sometimes we feel like the plan that God has or the purpose that he has isn't maybe the plan that we like. 
is maybe the plan that we want. It's like, okay, I'm suffering here, but I know you have a plan, but why is your plan that I should suffer? Why is your plan that I should suffer? But we have to, as they here had to, remember that God's plan is the right plan. It's the right plan. And they're understanding that. Remember, these guys had just gotten out of jail. They just gotten out of jail for doing something that God asked them to do. They did something good. The result was they got put in jail. Here they are saying, God, you have a plan. You know what it is, and I'm good with it. You're sovereign. You're the king. Okay? They recognize that by his death and resurrection, by that plan, good things happened even though there was suffering involved in it, even though there was suffering involved in it, and that God's plan for the universe is the right plan. So that's, that's an important thing to remember. When the times are hard for you, when the hard times come, you got to remember that any suffering, any suffering, no matter how great, and there's certainly in this room been some great suffering, and there's certainly in this world right now a lot of great suffering going on. And we've got to remember that no matter how serious that suffering is, God has told us very clearly that it does not compare. It doesn't begin to think about thinking about comparing to the glory and the joy of what it's going to be like when we're with him. It is suffering on this earth by its very nature is temporary, and it can only get so bad. And the worst that it could ever get does not compare to the joy that you will have. Now, that may or may not help you as you're going through something very difficult. You've got an illness. There's been a death in the family. You don't have any money. Something bad has happened to you. And and to think, well, it's going to be good later, may not always help you. But you've got to remember that you see a very small part of God's plan, a very small part of his plan. They understand that. They understand that. So when we look at it and we try to understand God's plan, one of the things you'll see is that people try to judge that plan as we go through this, this scripture. And the thing about judging God's plan is you've seen literally that much of a plan that is so vast. So if I wrote a song um, for you and was going to sing it for you, right? And you said, sing me the song that you wrote for me. And I said, okay. And I said, ah. And you just said, I hate it, right? One note, you hate it, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter that you haven't heard the rest of the song, you judge it on the one note. That's like you judging God's plan from where you're sitting. You can see this much of it. You can see this much. Now, he's told you all of it. If you read the end, what you see is we win. He wins, right? But as you're sitting here in your little one-note part of this very long song, sometimes you judge and you say, I don't like that note. So God must not know what he's doing. He must not know what he's doing. But that's not the way to view God's sovereignty. The way to view God's sovereignty is he does have a plan. I trust him that it's good. I'm not going to judge it based on the one little thing that I know. Instead, I'm going to believe that God, who knows a lot more than me and who has shown me in many, many ways his love for me and for his people, will in the end make all of it make sense. That's where these guys are. They know that they're suffering. They know that suffering's coming. And yet... They understand his plan and his sovereignty. Okay. Um, Let's look back, and we'll go back to verse 25 and 26. I'm going to read them again real quick. That was before this part about God's plan. It says, Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why do the nations rage? And the people plot vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now, what they're doing here is they're quoting a very memorable psalm from the book Psalms. It's in the middle of your Bible. If you want to turn there. Uh, We're going to read more of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a very interesting psalm. I find it to be 
one of the more interesting psalms because of how just right on it is. And I'm going to read you just a little bit more of Psalm 2. Okay, I'm going to read you the first four verses of it. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Now, this is a very interesting passage, okay? Here, the church, as they're, as they're making this prayer, as they're, as they're talking to God and they're quoting this psalm, they are referencing what happened with Christ specifically, specifically with Christ. In verse 27, we saw it said, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So they're saying, look, your prophecy was fulfilled. It's true. Truly, you said these guys would rise up against your anointed, against the Christ, and do this thing. And they did. That's what happened, right? The people plotted a vain thing, as it says here. They plotted the vain thing. They thought that they could kill Jesus and that that would end the story. But when they killed Jesus, it was just the beginning of the story. Rather than um, their plan and their conspiracy working out and giving them what they wanted, power, you know, power over the people, to be looked at as special, all these things, to get this guy out of the way who was taking away what they considered to be their glory. Instead, what they did was Jesus rose again, and it was even bigger than it was before. So they plotted the vain thing. It was vain. It was never going to work. So here they're referencing that. They're saying, look, you plotted this death, but what you ended up doing was fulfilling this prophecy that, by the way, he told you beforehand was going to happen. He told you beforehand that this was going to happen, and you just fulfilled it. So they plotted something vain. But here's the other thing about Psalm 2. It's still very relevant, very relevant. What do we see going on here? The people and the rulers plotting against God because they don't like his plan. They don't like his plan. They don't want God to be their Lord. They don't want God to be their Lord, their master, the one who they have to follow. They want to do what they want to do. And it says... As we read, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Cast away their cords from us. So whose bonds are they talking about? Think, think handcuffs, okay? That's what we're talking about. I'm in handcuffs. Whose handcuffs are they? They're God's. They're saying, God put these handcuffs on me. He's limited what I'm allowed to do. I want to break these bonds away. And what are these bonds? The bonds that they're talking about are essentially the nature of what God has set up as maker, as the maker of heaven and earth and all that is in them, of everything. He has certain rules that flow from who he is, that determine how we ought to behave, what we ought to do. And they're saying, we don't like those things. You tell me I ought to do this, but I want to do that. And so I want to break my bonds. I want to throw these chains off of me and do my own thing. And do my own thing. I, I think that we see this happening today in a pretty serious way. And the place where it's more, most maybe insidious and where it's sort of crept in is in the area of law. Because our laws tend to reflect what we think is the right thing to do. What flows from nature as what is right, as what is good, as what is true. Back in 1917... There's a very famous Supreme Court justice named Oliver Wendell Holmes. 
If you know the name of any Supreme Court justice, he's probably the one that you know. He's a very famous guy. And way back in 1917, he said this in a case called Southern Pacific Company versus Jensen. He said, the common law is not a brooding omnipresence in the sky, but the articulate voice of some sovereign or quasi-sovereign that can be identified. <laughs> that's, that's a difficult quote. Let me tell you what that means. Obviously, uh, lawyers make things much more difficult than they need to, right? So that they can sound like they're really smart or charge a lot of money or something. It works really great. You know, until you have, you know, the mechanic comes in and I tell him, look, you've got this really difficult tort problem. We may have to go to chancery court and this, and he's no idea what I'm talking about. He's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. But he gets me back when I go in, bring my car and he says, you've got this problem with your whatever this thing is. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. But he charges me twice as much. So I think he wins. Um, <laughs> either way, it's complicated language, but what's, what's Holmes saying? It's very simple what he's actually saying. He should have said it more simply. Here's what he's saying. The law doesn't come from God. There is no God. When he says brooding omnipresence in the sky, he's referencing God. He's saying this God who's making all these rules, I see him as this brooding omnipresence who's saying do this and don't do that. He's saying we don't need to worry about that. The law doesn't flow from who God is. It doesn't flow from who God is. It flows from whoever's got the power. We get to say what we do. Whichever human being happens to have the power gets to say what the law is, and that's all it is. See, prior to this, as the history of, of law and culture had come down in the Western legal tradition, from Rome, from Germany, from all these different sources that made up the Western legal tradition, it was always understood that the law was rooted in objective truth. In other words, what is right and what is wrong are real things they're not things that we make up, and it doesn't matter how many guns we have, we cannot change the nature of nature. And what Holmes is saying is, I'm going to break off my chains. There's no God that's telling me what to do. I can decide what's right and wrong for me, whatever I want, whatever I want. Now, that's 1917. Now, it took a long time for that to, as, as, a, as a cancer to grow and to permeate, permeate throughout law and throughout culture. To where now today, many people, including many Christians, have bought into this idea that the law is, has no connection to morality. The law is simply whatever we vote on as a people or whatever the guys in power say is right or wrong according to the law is that. But morality is this different thing. You can't legislate morality. You've probably heard that before, right? That's the same thing. We're breaking our chains we're breaking our chains off. So that's what's going on. This has become the norm. It's very Psalm 2. It's very, very Psalm 2. And so what we see is that this is still, this Psalm 2 thing is still going on in a particular way. We're still telling God that he can't tell us what to do. Now, oftentimes with law, you'll still hear people try to make a moral argument for whatever it is they want to change in the law. You know, they want to change something, they want to, they want to make some new thing that we've always thought was wrong to be right, then they'll say something, they'll try to appeal to morality, but when you argue against it or show that that's not the nature of the world and certainly not what God has declared for us to do, they go from making a moral argument to say, who are you to tell me what to do with my own body, 
Or who are you to tell me what to do in my own bedroom? Or who are you to tell me what to do? Fill in the blank. And who are they really saying that to? Are they saying it to you? Who are you to tell me what to do? Nope. You were simply telling them what God has proclaimed needs to be done. So it's really, they're saying it to God. There's no difference between the the phrase, who are you to tell me what to do? And the phrase, let us break their chains. Let us throw off their bonds. You don't get to tell me what I can do. You don't get to tell me what I can do. And so here's the thing. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Think about the person who designed your car. They designed it in a certain way. Okay, The car was designed in a certain way. And in fact, they even had a manual written that tells you how to operate that car. Sort of like God designed the universe and everything in it in a certain way and even made sure that we had a manual. Right? Same type of deal. He gave us scripture. He designed nature. We can look at nature. We can look at scripture. We can see what God has designed. How he's made things to work. Same way your car did. You can't rebel against the car maker's rules and expect your car to run right. Right? If you say, I'm breaking the chains of the car maker. I'm just going to put water in the gas tank and sugar in the engine instead of oil because that's what I want to do. And who is the car maker to tell me what I can do? Well, fine, you can do that, but your car's not going to run very well, right? Because the maker made it to work a certain way and you can all you want until you're blue in the face. Say, I'm going to do things my own way. It's not going to change the nature of the car. It's not going to work the way that you want it to. And it's the same thing with your life. If God has designed the universe and your life to work a certain way, you cannot choose to do it a different way and expect your life to run right any more than you can expect that car to run right. It's not going to work. So whose rules are you following in your life? Just shooting from the hip with your own or God's? I can tell you from way too much personal experience that yours will not work, but God's always will. And if you'd like to find out more, come see us at Axe Church this Sunday morning. We'd love to help you find peace and hope in Christ. Get easy directions anytime at axechurchnw.org or call 360-885-9000. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll check out the next episode for more great Bible teaching here on Contemplate.